Perhaps you have played the uh, word or person association game before. Uh, a person is mentioned and you're forced to respond immediately whether you have more positive or negative associations with them. I could name some people in the news in recent years and I'm sure that we would get a variety of responses. I could use the name Robert Mueller, who's been in the news for the last several years. I could name Urban Meyer. I could name Sean Hannity. I could name Colin Kaepernick. I could name Donald Trump. A variety of people who in one way or another are polarizing to people depending upon their association. It's amazing how the same person can engender such polarizing responses. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Hopefully you bring a copy of the Scriptures along with you. If you don't have one, we'd be happy to make one available to you. If you forgot it, just use it today and return it at the end of the service. If you don't have a Bible, this is our gift to you. We want you to have a copy of the Scriptures and to make use of it in your life. John chapter 12, for the next four weeks, we're going to be focusing our attention on John's Gospel, specifically chapter 12. Today, Palm Sunday, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and then the last Sunday in April. And of all the chapters in the Bible, this chapter is perhaps the most revealing in all of Scripture for who Jesus is and how people respond to him. If there was ever a chapter that exposed the Jesus dilemma for all of humanity and for each individual, you'd be hard-pressed to top this one. John 12 is like an MRI of the human heart. Now, before we dive into this particular chapter and the first 19 verses where we'll be today, it's important for us to consider the context. John's gospel is rather unique, especially when compared with the other uh, synoptic gospels, we call them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. For one thing, John's gospel is very simply ordered. It begins with a prologue, and then the first 11 chapters, essentially, represent the public ministry of Jesus. Let's call it the wide-angle lens. And in particular, John orients his summary of Jesus' life around seven miracles, or signs as he calls them, that point to Jesus' identity and his significance. You know some of them. Healing of the blind man, feeding the 5,000, turning water to wine at the wedding. Then in John 13, a chapter later than where you're at right now, through almost the end of the book, we have the passion narrative of John's gospel. It highlights, essentially, the last week of Jesus' life, uh, the Last Supper, uh, the trial, the crucifixion, the resurrection. It's a zoom lens. And in many cases, it highlights Jesus in his encounter with a person or a small group and what he reveals about their hearts. Think of his disciple Peter in John 13. Think of his encounter with Pilate in John 18 and 19. John 12 sits in the middle at the fulcrum as a crossroads of the entire gospel. In many ways, Jesus has virtually concluded his public ministry, but he's not yet begun his Passion Week and these intimate encounters with an individual or group. So in some ways, John 12 reveals the last words of Jesus' public ministry and how widely diverse people respond to him. Here we realize how polarizing 
the claims and identity of Jesus can be. Here's where we learn why Jesus came into the world, what his calling was. Here's how we discover what the actual nature of saving faith is. That's our focus in April. And today we begin with the first encounters. Look there in John 12, the first two verses that set the context. Read with me. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And right out of the gate, we learn something about the when and the where and the what and in part the whom of the whole story. Let's, let's take those in order. When? Six days before Passover. Passover in all likelihood occurred on Friday, so six days in advance of that is Saturday, Saturday evening. Passover was one of the three chief feasts or events on the Jewish calendar. And so with it, all kinds of Jews from outside of Jerusalem would come streaming into the city for that special occasion. And there was a special anticipation or expectation this year. This renowned teacher, this miracle worker, this seeming prophet was in their midst and the word was out. What about where? John names the occasion here. The location is Bethany. It's a small village on the outskirts of Jerusalem. I was just there two weeks ago, and as everything seems to have occurred in Israel, there's a church built upon the event or purported location of the event of Lazarus. Notably, this is the town where Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, lived. And one of the most riveting events in all of Jesus' ministry took place there. What? Well, the occasion right now is a dinner, is a feast served in Jesus' honor. Why? Because Jesus had become quite well known at this point to his followers, to his opponents, to curiosity seekers. We might say that the reputation of Jesus preceded him. He had been in enough places, he had done enough remarkable things that everyone knew something about Jesus. And people had this heightened sense of expectation, anticipation, Questions like, what might he do next? Who do you think he is? I wonder what the religious leaders and authorities will do in response. Finally, who? We're not told explicitly where this dinner takes place, but we already know that Lazarus and his sister Martha are present. Now remember, Lazarus was the one whom Jesus had just raised from the dead. There weren't chapter breaks in the original scriptures, and so chapter 11, where that is all recounted, flows naturally right into chapter 12. And we're told at the end of John 11, verse 45, that that, that event caused many Jews to believe in Jesus. We're told in verses 46 and 47 that there were others who went to tattle on Jesus to the Pharisees. And we're told at the end of John 11 that the religious leaders experienced great consternation and frustration, exasperation, because of Jesus. They were petrified that they might lose their status, they might lose their temple, they might even lose their nation. And worst of all, Lazarus was at that very dinner. The evidence of Jesus' might and power was in full view for everyone to see. Oh, and there was another family member there whom we meet in verse 3. 
And she's the first of five individuals or groups in this passage that we're going to encounter today. And we're going to see how they responded in such varied ways to Jesus. It's the other sister of Lazarus and Martha, the one who elsewhere earned the praise of Jesus, and she does so again here because her heart and her affection were praiseworthy. Mary regarded Jesus as her Lord. That's why. Verse 3. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now to be clear, this is not the same story as we read about in Luke 7. You might remember that story. It's a story of a, quote, sinful woman who had been a participant at a dinner that a Pharisee named Simon had put out. Here, the lady's name is Mary. She's the esteemed sister of Lazarus and Martha. She's a friend of Jesus. This story is told in Matthew and Mark as well. And in this story, we see a foreshadowing of what's about to come in the life of Jesus. The action here is real straightforward. Mary takes a socially scandalous amount of perfume and she empties it on Jesus' feet and she wipes them with her hair, which is absolutely outlandish on multiple levels. What are those? Well, first of all, this is a lot of pure nard, the name of the perfume. This is a perfume imported from northern India. The equivalent there is what we might call a pop can or a soda can, and it's very costly. Not so much an ointment for healing, but, but it's a scented oil to mark a festive occasion. It's outlandish, that volume. Even more so, she pours it on Jesus' feet. We think it's strange in our day to, to involve feet. It was strange in Jesus' day, too. Feet were considered the least attractive, the least desirable part of a person's body. Feet came in contact with dirt and, and dung and disease. You could anoint other parts of the body, maybe the head, but feet? Thirdly, Jesus, or Mary uses her hair to wipe Jesus' feet, which was especially scandalous for a woman. Back in that day, it was customary, it was expected that a woman would have her hair covered or bound up in some way. Loose, free-flowing hair was scandalous for a woman. It would make other people think that she was that kind of woman, a woman of loose morals. But here in public, Mary lets her hair down and she uses it as a towel for Jesus' feet. What was scandalous in the eyes of others was a sign of great adoration of Mary for Jesus. Mary indicates something about her level of devotion to Christ, that she adored him. Mary didn't stop to calculate the public reaction there. Her heart went out to her Lord, and she gave expression to something of her feelings in this beautiful, this touching act. There's a wonderful fragrance, and it filled the house, and no one could escape its scent. Let me ask you, does Mary's response reflect your heart? Has Jesus become the center of your affections, your allegiance, your, your purpose, your worship? Is Jesus to you more than just an object of study, more than just an enticing example? Is Jesus your life's 
admiration, adoration. Does Jesus have a heart-gripping attachment for you like he had for Mary? She's only the first person. Next, we meet another person who was present. His name's Judas, one of Jesus' disciples. And his response as a disciple of Jesus is ironically one of the worst responses that we see in the entire chapter. Because Judas regarded Jesus as his enabler. Jesus enabled Judas, so he thought, to get what he, Judas, wanted in life. Read with me verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. John writes, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. But Jesus replied, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Perhaps you've noticed there are many situations in life in which an individual is part of a group or a team or a community, but they're not fully loyal. Sure, they're wearing the team jersey, but they're not truly committed to the other people. They're participants only to the extent that they can use this association for their own personal good. The name Michael Cohen comes to mind. Whatever you think of our current president and his legal challenges, Michael Cohen, an attorney, is a hard man to admire. He got in when the money was good. He stayed in when the fame was high. He left when the pressure became great, and he betrayed when the punishment became sure. Michael Cohen is a man for himself. Loyalty only lasts as long as the benefits accrue to him. Otherwise, he bails. And the same is true of this man named Judas. Judas' objection is, is straightforward here. This is a waste of expensive perfume. This is throwing money down the drain. This is fabulously expensive perfume, and we get nothing in return. At least it could have been sold and the proceeds given to the poor. What a hypocrite, Judas. It's a little bit like the person who says... Why all this money given to new facilities when it could have been given to church planting in other places, all the while that person gave nothing financially? Or the person who says, oh, all this money given for new technology and, and signage when it could have been given to a local soup kitchen, all the while, while she gave nothing financially? Or the person who says, why all this money for staff when it, when it could have been used to support a dozen more global workers, all the while, while those people gave nothing financially? You see, Judas's objection at one level is understandable here. It, it, it is possible to waste something that's needed and better put to something that lasts. But Judas is what we call here a utilitarian. He's pretending to do the most good for the most number of people, but he's really in it for himself. Judas pits compassion and devotion against each other. And then is willing to make no such sacrifice himself. 
Judas acts like he's altruistic, but he's masking his own greed. Judas is in with Jesus for what he can get out of Jesus. John Piper reminds us these words from Judas show us two things. How expensive the ointment or the perfume is and how fatal it is when our hearts don't match the worth of Jesus. See, Judas' biggest error is that he doesn't really care about the poor or the worth of Jesus. He's using Jesus to make his wealth, his fame increase. Judas, after these several years together, is becoming dissatisfied with how everything has turned out. He had hoped for better results by attaching his life to Jesus and this little band of disciples. But what he had hoped to get from Jesus, it simply wasn't materializing for Judas. It was only complicating his life. So, so Judas feigns sacrifice when his heart is selfish. How often is that true of us? Where our real reason for following Jesus is to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Jesus becomes our, our sugar daddy for our best life now. And when that doesn't become our reality, we're quickly ready to dispose of Jesus or to trade him in for the next best thing. You know anybody like that? Might that be you? Jesus makes a bizarre comment here in response to Judas, at least bizarre in the minds of the people. The, the, the perfume was used for celebrations, not for funerals. And so when Jesus remarks about his own upcoming burial, it sur surely shocks those who hear it. It shows us that Jesus' mind is fixed on what is to come in the coming days, and he wants others to realize the priority of the now with himself in their presence. See, Jesus says the treasure is with you. Time is short. You won't always have me with you. Jesus isn't playing down giving to the poor, but he's playing up his impending death. He must be his followers' first commitment. Mary sees Jesus as her Lord. Judas sees Jesus as his enabler. There's another player in the drama here. It's the crowd. The crowd regarded Jesus as their deliverer. Throughout Jesus' life, he provoked a lot of fascination, a lot of curiosity. And, and it ebbed and flowed depending on what he did. But in general, as time passed, the fascination increased. Much of it has to do, had to do with what the Jews themselves longed for. Remember, the Jews were minority people. They were a minority religiously and ethnically. They were a little corner people off at the end of the Roman Empire. They had few rights and a lot of scorn from other people. And they despised the Romans who they thought misruled and oppressed them. And they thought to themselves, if only God would send a deliverer to rid us of these Roman oppressors. They even sang about it. They sang about a deliverer, a Messiah who was to come. The Psalms, right in the middle of our Bibles, is actually a, a hymn book. It's a collection of songs. And in, in Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, called the Halal among Jews, 
this was sung by Jews at Passover season. And so the words of these hymns were fresh in the minds of the Jews. And toward the end of that, end of Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26, we read this. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. And now a person who had come, had come who was able to heal diseases, who was able to cast out demons, who was able to teach with authority and was able to, to raise a man from the dead. It's no wonder that they all came out to see Jesus. Verse 9 of John 12 says this, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. The resurrected man, Lazarus, was right there in front of them. Look down at verse 12 and 13. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. The, the expectations were at a fever pitch. Jesus was now headed to Jerusalem, and the rumor, true as it was, was spreading rapidly. It wasn't just those who were in Bethany with him who were accompanying him, but now the, the great crowds in Jerusalem were coming out to see this Jesus as he entered. They wanted to catch a glimpse of him. They thought, perhaps this is the one. Perhaps the deliverer is here. Perhaps he will show his power and his might now. Perhaps this is our long-awaited king. Make Israel great again! The palm branches stand out in this particular passage because the waving of palm branches was a nationalistic symbol of victory. And the people thought that Jesus, right then, right there, was going to bring about some kind of national deliverance of Israel against the Romans. So they hailed him as the, the king from David, as the promised Messiah. They shouted right here about the king of Israel with all of the political and military connotations. The Pharisees weren't so excited. They were concerned that this populist movement around Jesus would actually stir up problems. That the Romans would see this as an act of rebellion and would, would suffocate it. And with that suffocation, all the hopes and identity of the nation. It's important that we understand what was going through the Jews' mind in this particular passage with Jesus. New Testament scholar George Eldon Ladd says, a mighty leader who would overthrow Rome is precisely what the people desired of their Messiah. They wanted a king to deliver them from Rome, not a savior to redeem them from their sins. Messiah suggested to the minds of the people a kingly son of David who would be anointed by God to bring to Israel political deliverance from the yoke of the heathen and to establish an earthly kingdom. And they thought it was at hand. And Jesus doesn't fully reject it here. And so their enthusiasm only increases. 
Verse 17 says, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. Is this the one? Mary saw Jesus as her Lord. Judas saw Jesus as his enabler. The crowd saw Jesus as their deliverer. There's a fourth group, the religious leaders, who regarded Jesus as their rival. If you read the end of John 11, it makes for some of the best thriller novel reading ever written. And it has the advantage of being historical and true. See, after the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the, the religious leaders were beside themselves in rage and exasperation and frustration. They were deathly worried that this popularity of Jesus would jeopardize their whole way of life and their status and even their nation. They had to prevent this. So they ordered anyone and everyone to turn Jesus in for arrest. In fact, to solve this intractable dilemma of Jesus, they even plotted to take his life. And that plot develops in chapter 12. Verse 10 of chapter 12, so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The priests plotted together to kill Lazarus, which if you think about it is, is laughably absurd. Death hadn't been able to keep Lazarus down upon the command of Jesus. What makes them think they could kill Lazarus and keep him down? And this was a double embarrassment for some of the religious leaders, the Sadducees. They didn't even believe in a resurrection. And there was Lazarus, resurrected by Jesus himself, standing right in front of them. No wonder they said a few verses later, Another group, the Pharisees, verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The irony, the, the foolishness here knows no bounds. We could summarize it like this, like one of our study Bibles does. The chief priests betrayed an astounding refusal to allow their beliefs to be changed by undeniable facts. They would rather destroy the evidence than change their minds. This is not rational behavior, but sin produces irrational action. Maybe you've seen it too often when what we don't want to be true stands undeniably true. We go to absurd lengths to suppress the evidence. Mary, Jesus is Lord. Judas, Jesus is enabler. The crowd, Jesus is deliverer. The leaders, Jesus is rival. But what about those closest to Jesus? What did they have to say about this one to whom they had hitched their wagons in life? The disciples regarded Jesus as a conundrum. Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. Jesus begins to upend the expectations of people, including his disciples. 
Why? Because Jesus wasn't riding into Jerusalem on a war horse. He wasn't forecasting that he had come for political and military revolution. He wasn't mounted on this beast of triumph. He knew that he could have whipped up all kinds of political aspirations of the crowd into an insurrectionist frenzy if he had entered Jerusalem on a war horse. But he dampens all those nationalistic expectations because he comes in riding low and riding on a donkey. Jesus turns their expectations upside down and it reveals his nature. He also fulfills prophecy. Hundreds of years before this took place, the prophet Zechariah said in chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the full of a donkey. Instead of coming in on this impressive war horse for battle, Jesus mounted a lowly donkey. And by doing so, he made a perplexing statement to them. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on donkey to symbolize something. The idea of a Messiah, very different than that of the crowds. They hailed him as the messianic king, but Jesus came as the prince of peace. Does Jesus still upend expectations today? Does the Jesus that you think will be the answer to all of your hopes ever challenge those very hopes? Does Jesus ever reorder your expectations? Does Jesus ever promise deliverance to you, but he carries it out in a way that is not what you expect or even desire? A little time in life makes us answer, yes, he does. And what Jesus did back then, Jesus does with us as well. When he walked the earth, those in closest proximity to him, closest relationship to him, his disciples, they felt whiplash with Jesus. What they expected from him, what they craved from him, was different than what he delivered. See, the disciples wanted Jesus to fulfill their wishes. But Jesus was most concerned about meeting their needs. And what's true on an individual level for them is true on an individual level for us. And it's true of all of humanity. The coming of the gentle king is associated with the cessation of war. Oh, you mean might doesn't make right? The coming of the gentle king is associated with a proclamation of peace to the nations. Wait, you mean the Gentiles get in on this too? The coming of the gentle king is associated with the blood of God's covenant that spells release for prisoners. Wait, you mean those of us who have a better morality don't get advanced standing with God? No wonder John writes in his narrative here about the disciples, verse 16, at first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him 
and that these things had been done to him. They didn't get it because they couldn't get it. The expectations of the disciples colored everything that they would see and understand. It was only after they got the fuller picture, only after a little more time and events in the life of Jesus that they got it. Yeah, they anticipated Jesus as the Messiah, as the Deliverer, as the King, but but what He came to offer and how He came to do it and how it reached its climax, these revealed a reality far different than what the disciples expected. Jesus was coming in mostly covert ways to forecast what one day He will deliver in overt ways. Jesus, in many ways, when he came, was incognito to the people of our world. And that's part of the mystery of the king and part of the mystery of the kingdom. The divine secret, listen closely, is that in the ministry of Jesus, for the first time it's been disclosed to men. But the future, apocalyptic, end of time, glorious kingdom has come secretly to work among men in advance of its open manifestation. Jesus came forecasting. Jesus will come delivering. The disciples needed eyes to see that. And so do we. They received this sight after Jesus was glorified, after the Spirit came And so can we. But you and I stand on this side of that history. And so we don't have any more excuses. Confusion about who Jesus is no longer makes sense. Because those central events in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus have already taken place. They've already been revealed. Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news. He is the one who changes history and He is the one who can change you. The question is, what do you conclude about Jesus? Because Jesus asks to each of us, who do you say that I am? I'm going to ask Danny and those who will lead us in worship to come up here, but before we respond, I want to ask you, which person or group are you like? Maybe there are a few in here who view Jesus like the religious leaders did, as as a rival. Jesus is a threat to your life. Maybe some more of you, more than we're comfortable admitting, view Jesus like Judas did. He's an enabler for my life the way I want it. Some of us are like the crowds who think Jesus is our deliverer. He's going to fix everything that I don't like in my life. I hope many of us are like Mary, who saw Jesus for who he is and saw what he had done and proclaimed him as Lord of her life. But I fear many, many of us are like the disciples. We're a little confused. We're fascinated. We're mesmerized. We're attracted, but we've never submitted our lives to say, oh, that's who you are. Friends sitting here today, who do you say 
Jesus is. Jesus' identity is crystal clear. What may not be is your response to him. I ask you to bow your heads just for a moment. In a moment of silence where you just say, Jesus, who have I said that you are? And what does my life show about my conclusion? I pray, O oh God, that you would help us to respond in honesty, in transparency. And if we're here today and have done anything less than proclaiming and demonstrating Jesus as Lord in our lives, that we would come to you for who you are to show the world what you can do. Thank you, Jesus, for being that kind of God. In your name we pray. Amen.